human effort, religion can never produce spiritual life. Only God can give life. God will hold us accountable to no one do what he has written in his word. Trust in Jesus' sacrificial payment for your sin is the only way to have eternal life with God. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you open to John 3, John 3, we're going to, Lord willing, go through the first portion of this chapter um, today. Remember, the Gospel of John was written about 55 years or so after Jesus' ascension into heaven. John is probably in his 80s when he wrote this book. He's looking back over five, six decades. He wrote the Gospel to do two things, which he explains in John chapter 20. He says, first, he's going to demonstrate and defend by proof and evidence, the deity of Jesus Christ. He's going to make the claim, and then he's going to document and prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And secondly, for the reader, having understood that Jesus is the Son of God, he wants to persuade the reader to believe in Christ's payment for their sins so that they can receive eternal life and live with God in heaven forever. Now, last week we were in John 2, and Jesus in northern Israel, a region called Galilee, did his first miracle. He performed uh, uh, turning the water into wine at a wedding. We talked about the fact that God sometimes does luxury miracles. They're not essential. They're not necessarily saving a life, but he cares about the small details. And turning the water into a wine was a a way to bless uh, people. So he spends some time in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee in the north, and then he travels south to Jerusalem where he cleanses the temple by driving out the money changers. So if you'll pick up the narrative in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, the end of chapter 2, he's in Jerusalem. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he's in Jerusalem, he's doing a lot of different miracles. He's demonstrating his divine power over disease, death, demons, nature, etc., etc. And as a result of these supernatural signs, many of the people in Jerusalem are observing these signs, and it says that they believed in him. But it also says that Jesus doesn't believe in their belief. Jesus doesn't have faith in their faith because it wasn't a saving faith. They believe that Jesus is a teacher, he's a prophet. They believe that God's with him because, I mean, he's doing these miracles, he's doing these signs, but they didn't believe that he was God, the Son of the living God, come in the flesh to save them from sin. And you say, well, how did Jesus know what they were thinking? Because he's God, right? He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's demonstrating the deity of Christ, number one, John is, by the miracles that he's doing, and number two, by noting that he can see into the heart of human beings. And one such human he looked into the heart of is the subject of our study today, and that is the story of Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 1. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Let's take a look at this character. Nicodemus really represents the very best of Israel. We know at least three things about him. Number one, he was a rich man. Tradition says that he was one of the three richest mans in the entire city of Jerusalem, very wealthy. Number two, he was a very, very respectable man. He had a lot of fame. He had a lot of street uh, awareness. You would know him on the street when you saw him. He was held in great esteem by those in Israel. John notes some things about him. It says he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, that meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling council in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was the the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. It was the the Congress. They were responsible for religious decisions, civil decisions, criminal decisions, short of the death penalty. 
And they operated under, of course, Roman rule because they were occupied by Rome at this time, but the supreme ruling body of the nation of Israel was the Sanhedrin, and he was a member of that. They, they consisted of 70 members. There were 70 members on the Sanhedrin, plus the high priest, so a total of 71 people. And there were two political parties in Israel at this point. The Pharisees on one hand, the Sadducees on the other. Kind of like we have a two-party system, uh, they had a two-party system too. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the upper crust of Jewish society. They were very political. They were far more political than religious uh, they were religiously liberal, other than the fact that they accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible they believed in, Moses' writings, the rest of the Old Testament, nah, not so much. The prophets, the history, they rejected most of that. They were very politically connected with Rome, and they were interested in power and money. That's the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, the other political party, they're about 6,000 in number, pretty small party. They were religiously conservative. They were very legalistic and they were very nationalistic. The Sadducees were really interested in political power and their alignment with Rome. The Pharisees said, Israel first, period, end of story. They were largely middle class business people for the most part. They weren't laity. I mean, they were laity. They were not priests, Levites, none of that. These were lay people, but they were highly respected by the people and they often opposed the Sadducees and their name, Pharisee, means to be separated. So it, it comes from a root word meaning to be separate. And they worked very hard at separating themselves from sin and from sinful people who they considered to be anybody but themselves. Right? The rest of you sinners, uh, they did, had nothing to do with it. They were extremely self-righteous. And they despised the common citizen of Israel as being a sinner. And one of the reasons they got so irate with Jesus is he hung out with those sinners, right? Which they didn't consider themselves to be. So their arrogance was rather astonishing. I can relate to that. So can you. They were zealous in obeying the Mosaic Law. As a matter of fact, they not just obeyed the Mosaic Law, they had written hundreds of other man-made rules on top of the Mosaic Law that they called the Traditions of the Elders. In the church today, we say, we've always done it that way, right? We've always done it that way. That's a tradition of the elders. We've always done it that way. Jesus got into a lot of trouble with them because he attacked a lot of their man-made rules, which they considered to be equivalent with Scripture, right? They treated their man-made rules as equivalent with God's Word, and of course, Jesus called them out on that. So Nicodemus was part of this Sanhedrin. He was... Um, very rich man, a very respectable man. He was a very religious man. Jesus called him a teacher in Israel. He was the recognized authority in the nation on the Old Testament law, and he was one of the leading Pharisees. Now, like all Pharisees, he believed that if you kept the Mosaic law and you kept all the traditions of the elders, that would earn you eternal life. That would get you into God's kingdom. That would keep you from God's wrath. So he's rich, he's respectable, and he's religious, but he desperately needs a redeemer. And he's got power, prestige, and position, but he's worried about his relationship with God. He knows the law in detail. He knows that he doesn't keep it perfectly. He knows he's a hypocrite. He fears God's judgment. He knows his sin is separated from God. He just doesn't know what to do about it. So he's got all this human attributes that we would say this guy's got it made. Rich, respectable, religious, very highly honored in the society. But he comes to Jesus, who is an itinerant, an educated stonemason from the hick town of Nazareth. Verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, quote, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, when you read commentaries about Nicodemus, there's, they make a lot of to-do about the fact that he came to visit Jesus at night. You know, Some commentators say, well, he was probably wise to do this because he was really worried about what the rest of the Pharisees would say about him if he was openly associating 
with a rabbi that the Sanhedrin opposed. Jesus is doing miracles, and the Sanhedrin are power brokers, and Jesus is already ruffling some feathers. So the Sanhedrin, the group that Nicodemus is part of, is already pretty opposed to Jesus, and he doesn't want the opposition from them if he shows up at daylight, so he comes to see Jesus at night so he doesn't get hassled by his fellow Pharisees. Some think that his nighttime visit was kind of a metaphor of the spiritual darkness of his own soul, and it's true that he is in spiritual darkness at this point, which is what Jesus is going to deal with. Some simply believe that he's got a busy schedule, Jesus has got a busy schedule, so he comes by night when they have time for an extended conversation, and they're uninterrupted, which I think probably makes sense. Here's the only thing that's important. The only thing that's important is that Jesus made time for Nicodemus. That's all that matters. I don't care. It could be two in the morning. It could be two in the afternoon. You and I need to remember and never forget that Jesus is always accessible to the seeking heart. He is always accessible 24-7. He promised in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, what? I will by no means cast out. And we need to remember that we serve a Savior that seeks a relationship with sinners. We all qualify for that. 24-7, we can come and have a conversation with Jesus about anything, anytime, anywhere. Now, the name Nicodemus is utterly intriguing. It literally means conqueror of or victor over the people. Nike means what? Victory, the name Nike, that's Greek. His parents were Pharisees. And you wonder what they were thinking about the common people when they named their son victor over the people. I mean, Pharisees didn't think too much of the common people, so they named their son. This guy's going to conquer the common people. Interesting. So Jesus um, has been doing signs in Jerusalem, and Nicodemus is pretty impressed. And he comes to Jesus, even though he's part of the Sanhedrin, who will ultimately crucify him. He calls Jesus rabbi, which is a respectful greeting that means teacher, right? Pretty respectful greeting. And he says, interesting phrase, he says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. And you say, well, who's this we stuff, right? Is he talking about fellow Pharisees? There may be some more people on the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, perhaps, who also have been observing Jesus' miracles and say, you can't do miracles unless you have God's power. Jesus must have come from God. What's interesting is that when your enemies, the Pharisees, acknowledge that you are performing miracles, Jesus, it's pretty good evidence that you really are performing miracles because the enemies wouldn't want to give any credence to someone who's performing miracles. But Nicodemus' view of Jesus is inadequate. He says, you're a teacher sent from God. He doesn't say, you are God. He even acknowledges that God must be with Jesus uh, in order for those miracles to take place. It seems as though he may be trying to figure out if Jesus is a teacher or maybe even a prophet. Now, you need to understand in that era, if you came to the Jewish nation and you are teaching a new doctrine, you would be thrashed and trashed and executed, probably, depending on the degree of your uh, teaching, unless you could document your teaching with miracles. If you brought a new teaching and that teaching was accompanied with supernatural signs, they would conclude that that teaching comes from God because there are supernatural signs with it. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was coming and bringing doctrine about himself as a Messiah, but he was also documenting the authenticity of his deity by doing miracles. So Nicodemus comes and he has these couple of questions, these couple of statements. He says, we know that you've come from God. And Jesus doesn't even respond to his verbal concerns. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's the principle. Our sin has separated us from God, which is spiritual death. Only Jesus Christ can reconcile our relationship with God and give us spiritual life. Let me say that again. Our sin has separated us from God, which is spiritual death. Only Jesus Christ can reconcile our relationship with God and give us spiritual life. Now, Jesus, who obviously is God, 
knows that Nicodemus is worried about not getting the kingdom of heaven. So he cuts right to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue for all humankind from time and eternity has always been, how can sinful man have a right relationship with holy God? When you're out in the world and you're looking at people and you think they have it all together and they think they have it all together, nothing matters eternally if they don't have a right relationship with Jesus Christ because our sin has separated us from God and I don't care how much stuff you accumulate in this life, when you die, you are going to leave it all and you are going to face the Lord. And so Jesus knows that having a right relationship with holy God is the key issue from time and eternity for sinful human being and now he's going to talk about that. And he says, Nicodemus... Pay attention to what I'm going to say. You know, when Jesus has something really important to say, he says, truly, truly, or in your old King James, verily, verily, right? He's basically saying the same thing. It means amen. It means uh, to confirm. It means so be it. Truly, truly means this is final truth. This is the last word. Truly, truly means there's nothing more to be said after this. So when you see Jesus use that term, truly, truly, it means turn your hearing aids on high. And he uses this phrase, truly, truly, three times with Nicodemus in just a very few verses. And he uses an illustration to help Nicodemus understand spiritual life. And he says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that term born again has been used in our culture for decades and decades and decades. And Jesus uses that term born again five times with Nicodemus. Very, very clear emphasis. The term born again, anothen in Greek, has three meanings, all of which apply here. To be born again, again means a second time. A second time. Second meaning. It means to begin something radically, completely, totally new. So something brand new. And thirdly, it means to be born from above. So the source of that birth is from above. So born again literally means to be completely, totally, radically new, reborn from above. It is literally new life from God. The source of spiritual birth is God's power, not man's performance. And Jesus uses physical birth to illustrate spiritual birth. And he does it for a couple different reasons. One, you probably don't remember, but you had absolutely nothing to do with your birth. When you are spiritually born again, you had absolutely nothing to do with your spiritual birth either. Your parents, physical parents, were the authors of your physical life, and Almighty God is the author of your spiritual life. Birth is something that happens to a baby. It's not something a baby does for themselves. There are no how-to steps for a baby to follow when they're being physically born. You don't give the kid a manual and say, here's how you're going to come out of the womb. Jesus never tells Nicodemus how to be born again because it's not human prerogative to be born again. Spiritual birth, spiritual regeneration is not a self-help process. It is 100% God's work, God's power, God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not even your own. It's a gift of God, right? So the theological term for born again is, is regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration is, occurs when God imparts new spiritual life through the Holy Spirit to the people he has chosen to save. So why do we need regeneration? Why do we need new spiritual birth? Why should someone be interested in being born again? Well, because our sin has separated us from God, who is the source of all life. And if you're separated from the source of life, what are you? Dead, right? Romans 3.23 says, This separation is universal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that fall short means to miss the mark. It means that the arrow of human effort to buy God's favor through good works and performance falls short of God's target. God's target is perfect moral righteousness. And the consequences of falling short is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. So we need new life, spiritual life, because we were disconnected from God. We were divorced from God. We are dead to God. 
we use the word dead in trespasses and sins to physically illustrate a spiritual reality. A corpse is completely unresponsive to any stimuli. Think about that. When you're dead, you are completely non-responsive to any physical stimulus. You can have a conversation with that body. You can poke that body. One of the ways they test sometimes if you're dead is to prick you for pain purposes, right? The sinner who is separated from God is described as dead in trespasses and sins because they have complete inability to respond to God. They have no ability to respond to God. Ephesians 2.1 says what? And you were, what? Dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. That's the greatest hope in all eternity. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So Jesus is emphasizing to Nicodemus, Spiritual life is not something a dead person can give to themselves. Any more than you have any influence on your physical birth. It is something that happens to you through the power of another. Spiritual life is what the God-man, Jesus Christ, gives us as a gift. We don't achieve salvation. We receive it. We receive it by believing in and placing our faith in Christ's payment for our sins. Now, the issue with a gift is you have to receive it in order for it to be useful. If someone gives you a gift and you refuse it, the gift does you no benefit, right? Well, when Jesus Christ gives us the gift of eternal life, Christ's payment for your sins won't do you any good if you refuse to accept it. John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he, Jesus Christ, gave the right to become children of God, even to those that believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he calls us children of God. Those who believe and receive in Christ's payment for their sins not only are given God's life, they are adopted into God's family as his blood-bought children. So our spiritual birth, our new life in Christ, is not something we inherit from our physical family. God has no grandchildren. Nor does it come about by human effort. We cannot earn it. We cannot perform well enough to get it. Salvation is a gift from God, that new life. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God in the Old Testament was the messianic millennial kingdom where Christ was going to come back to earth and reign for a thousand years. That's what they knew of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. The New Testament expands the kingdom of God to include heaven, and all eternity forever and ever with the Lord. When he says you cannot see the kingdom of God, that means you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you can't get into the kingdom of God. You can't experience the kingdom of God. You can't participate in the kingdom of God. It means you don't have an eternal relationship with God. Now, this was a serious problem for the Jews. The Jews at that period believed that they had automatic entrance into the kingdom of God because they were descendants of Abraham. And God had promised, I'm going to bless the entire planet, Abraham, through your seed, through your children, right? And furthermore, they believed that they kept all the requirements of the Mosaic law at a high enough standard that God would let them into heaven. So they didn't think they needed the Savior. They thought, because of my religious, my ethnic composition as a Jew, I am automatically gained entrance into heaven because, number one, I do work, and number two, I'm a member of Abraham's family, and Jesus said, not going to happen. Unless you're born again, you do not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way into God's kingdom, and it's not the way that Nicodemus has been pursuing his entire life. Nicodemus and most people that you run into on the street in the next day or two, you have family, they believe Satan's lie that religion can save them from God's judgment and earns God's favor. Religious people trust that their own self-righteousness, their own performance, their own goodness will be good enough to earn God's favor. 
And they base that on comparing their righteousness not with God's righteousness, which is 100% perfection. They base their good enough righteousness compared to people they think are worse than them. And they say, well, at least I'm not an Adolf Hitler. Well, that's the standard for goodness, right? I mean, you know. God says, I don't grade on the curve. Entry into my kingdom requires 100% perfection. It's really pass-fail. There's no curve. I'm not grading you against other people. So self-righteous people, which were all of us before we came to Christ, we compare ourselves with what? Other sinners. And we say, I'm not as dirty, as stinky as they are. I mean, I may have a little B.O. every now and then, you know, and I drool when I wake up in the morning, but I don't stink like those people do, right? That is self-righteousness, and that's what Pharisees, Nicodemus, and all fallen humans believe. Jesus said that all religion, human morality, goodness, virtue, sacrifice, devotion, deeds of service, philanthropy, whatever it is, are worthless as a means of salvation. They are rubbish, dung, manure in God's sight because God requires moral perfection and no one is perfect. Isaiah 64 says what? All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So let me compare these two just to give you an idea because you know a lot of religious people. You might have been a religious person. I hope you're not a religious person now. Because religion is man's effort to reach God. Regeneration is God's work in changing man. Religion is man's effort to reconcile with God through human effort, good work, sacrifice, rule keeping. Regeneration is God's gift of a new nature, a new life, his life by means of spiritual rebirth. Religion is man's attempt to dress and wash the corpse so that it looks really good in the casket. Regeneration is God giving his divine life and resurrecting the corpse from the dead. Religion is like putting lipstick on a pig and expecting the pig to stay out of the mud. Regeneration is God giving the pig a new nature so that it wants to stay out of the mud. You cannot remodel the house of human effort to get into heaven. It's beyond repair. It's got to be demolished. What's required is a new nature. Verse 4. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's the principle. Spiritual life requires being cleansed from sin and given new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual life requires being cleansed from sin and given new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems that Nicodemus is an older man. I guess we can relate to that, kind of, you know. Nicodemus' whole life, he has spent his entire life trying to earn God's favor through human effort. He, they, they, they had 613 man-made rules that you had to keep. I couldn't even know what they are, let alone keep them. Now Jesus said, Nicodemus, your decades of self-righteous religion are worthless. You have been wasting your life on something that will not get you into heaven. Jesus is now going to give Nicodemus clarification on what it means to be born again because he's obviously confused. He, and he says, being born of water in the Spirit. He's giving, def he's giving a, an extended definition of what being born again means, and it literally translates being, water, being born of water in Spirit. So it's defined, this regeneration, new life, new birth, is described by two terms, water and Spirit. Now remember, Nicodemus is taking his authority from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, water often represented spiritual cleansing, spiritual renewal. In Ezekiel 36, God promises to give Israel a new nature from above, from the Holy Spirit. And in this passage, God uses the term, I will, five times. Now, when God says, I will do X, Y, or Z five times, 
you better pay attention because it's going to happen. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is an Old Testament definition of regeneration, of new life, of the Holy Spirit indwelling and saving the sinner from death and reinstalling their relationship with Jesus Christ. So in this case, water refers to re cleansing from sin. Now remember, John the Baptist is busy baptizing at this point. When people repented, they were baptized as a symbol of that commitment. Baptism doesn't save, it's a symbol of that. And the Spirit, Jesus said, be born of water, and the Spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is responsible for your salvation. You would not be here without the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin and drawing you to the Savior. So in order to obtain eternal life, Jesus said, Nicodemus, you have to be cleansed from your sinful self-righteousness. You have to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God himself does the cleansing. God gives us a new heart. God gives us a spirit that responds to God. God gives us the ability and the desire, the power and the will to decide to please God. Before Christ, none of us in this room had either the ability, the power to obey God, nor did we have the desire. I didn't want to obey him. I wanted to obey me, right? I worshiped at the altar of self. And even if I'd wanted to obey God, I didn't have the power because I was in bondage to sin. I needed new life. I needed God's life in me. And all of us do that. Only God can give new life to a spiritually dead sinner. All we bring to the occasion, all we bring to the Savior is what? Ourselves. That's the only role you have in salvation. You bring yourself humbly, convicted, confessing your sin. That's who you bring. God does everything else. Verse 6. Jesus said, Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Here's the principle. Human effort... Religion can never produce spiritual life. Only God can give life. Human effort can never produce spiritual life. Only God can give life. He's, Jesus is now clarifying, look, I'm talking about two categories here, the physical and the spiritual. The realm of the fallen man is the flesh. The realm of God is the spirit. Flesh is a word for fallen, sinful, depraved human nature that can only produce evil. All sinful human flesh can produce is sin because that is nature. Everything reproduces after its kind, right? What did ducks produce? They don't produce eagles. What do lions produce? They don't produce mice. They produce lions, right? We reproduce after our nature. Sinners sin because it's their nature to sin, right? It comes out of them. Snakes bite. It's their nature to bite, right? Sinners cannot not sin. Before Christ, you were in bondage to sin. We cannot not sin until we're set free from the law of sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't act contrary to our sin nature, so God gives us a new nature. How bad was the old nature? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Which means we can't understand our own hearts. Fortunately, by God's grace, he says in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, human flesh cannot produce God's spiritual life. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can resurrect spiritually dead people. And he says again, you must be born again. Non-optional, absolutely necessary. There is no other way into God's kingdom there is no other source of eternal life. Life only comes from life. That's the law of biogenesis. Life only comes from life. Spiritual life only comes from spiritual life. Physical life only comes from physical life. 
You can't produce physical life from non-life. We know that. Guess what? Dead people, spiritually separated from God, can't produce spiritual life. That which is dead can't produce life. It takes life from the outside. When you were born physically, it was a transfer of your parents' life to you, right? You inherited their physical life. Spiritual birth is a transfer of God's life into his children. We are dependent on his life. Galatians 2.20 says what? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, we know that you have life because the Holy Spirit, the source of your life, lives inside you. You have God living inside you. And we go, whoa. Yeah, when you look at your spouse, you're looking at the Holy Spirit living in that person. When you look at your child, when you look at, right, it's pretty sobering. So Jesus is going to give Nicodemus another analogy to help him understand how this works, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's your principle. Like the wind, the Holy Spirit works inscrutably and invisibly, but the effects of his work are visible. I was going to say the effects of his work are blindingly obvious, but I didn't. I was a little heavy. Like the wind, the Holy Spirit works inscrutably and invisibly, but the effects of his work are visible. Now, you say, well, how does the Holy Spirit give me new life, the life of God? And the answer is that's a mystery. We don't know how God gives us new life through the Holy Spirit. We know that he does because he promised it, and we can see the effects of it. Now, the Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, it's where the word we get pneumatic, like pneumatic drills, etc. It means both wind and spirit. Pneuma means wind and spirit. And that's the phrase that's used here. The wind is uncontrollable, unpredictable, irresistible, and invisible. The source of the wind and the destination of the wind are mysterious. We don't really know where wind comes from, where is its source, and where it's going to end up, but the effects of the wind are very visible. You can see the effects of the wind. You see leaves blowing and kites sailing and uh, you know, clouds moving and debris being flung around your yard. If you look at tornadoes and hurricanes, you can obviously see the effect of the wind but the wind itself is a mystery. And the Holy Spirit in Scripture is often referred to as wind, as breath, as ruach. We can't control the wind. Guess what? You can't control the Spirit either. When you are reborn from above, that means the Holy Spirit has given you the life of God. You have the divine nature in you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. We can't see the Spirit in you, but we can see the effects of the Spirit in you or the lack thereof. Because someone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit thinks differently, talks differently, acts differently than they did before they had divine life, correct? How many of you are a bit different than you were before Christ? That is a result of having the divine nature in you shaping your conduct and your character, your motives, and your behaviors. Someone who's filled with the Spirit and dwelled by the Spirit, instead of desiring the things of the flesh, what do they do now? They desire God. They desire God's Word. They desire God's people. They desire God's purposes. Before, when you're dead in trespasses and sin, what were you seeking? The flesh, right? Sin, because you thought that would satisfy now you look back and you go, I can't believe I ate all that garbage, right? I mean, garbage, really garbage, right? Now that you have feasted on the banquet of the Lord's word. So when the Holy Spirit controls the life, what do we see? The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is an overflowing life. A plant that produces fruit 
means it has excess life. If you have a sick tree or a sick plant, it doesn't produce fruit because all the energy goes into keeping it alive. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. The overflowing life of the Spirit becomes visible in our life. How do we know that? What are the fruits of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the last one, self-control, right? They become visible. They grow on your Christian life like fruit grows on a tree. By the way, fruit is proof of life, both on a tree and in you and me. Jesus said if there's no fruit, the tree is probably dead, right? Nicodemus is this point in time, he's confused, and he says to Jesus in verse 9, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher in Israel and do not understand these things? Here's the principle. God will hold us accountable to no one do what he has written in his word. God will hold us accountable to no one do what he's written in his word. Jesus says, you ought to know these things. You're the preeminent teacher in Israel. I have promised the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I promised this. He said in Joel 2.28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That is the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it's in the Old Testament, and God held Nicodemus accountable to know what he had written. Guess what? Everything here, you're accountable for. I'm accountable for. It's written down in the King's English, right? It's, we, we are accountable to know what God says so we can do what God says. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're the best teacher in Israel. You should understand that I have promised to give people the Holy Spirit. I promised to redeem them. I promised to change them. And I've already done so in the past, by the way. You should know that as well. After the prophet Samuel anointed King Saul, this is a fascinating passage, 1 Samuel 10.6. Samuel told Saul, sometime in the future, here's what's going to happen to you. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you will prophesy with them, he's talking about the sons of the prophets, and be changed into another man. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, what happened? God changed his heart. That means his identity, his goals, his passions, his ability to please God. We all have been given the new nature, the supernatural nature of Almighty God living in us. And God said, Nicodemus, you should know that because I've demonstrated it in the Old Testament history and I promised it to the future. Verse 11. Truly, truly, Jesus is speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Here's the principle. Trust in Jesus' sacrificial payment for your sin is the only way to have eternal life with God. Trust in Jesus' sacrificial payment for your sin is the only way to have eternal life with God. Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you're having trouble understanding basic earthly realities, how will you comprehend spiritual realities? Nicodemus is not believing in Christ at this point, and it represents Israel's unbelief. Israel had rejected their Messiah and is teaching about divine truth, and because of that, they entered into spiritual darkness. Have you ever talked to somebody about the Lord, and they look at you, and it's clear they are clueless. I mean, the lights aren't even on. There's nobody home, but there's no lights on either. That happens for a reason, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, they have absolutely no capacity to understand God's word, God's will, God's ways. If they're going to respond to the gospel presentation that we give them, the Holy Spirit is going to have to give them new life. 
and spiritual insight, which He did for you before you responded. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes and my eyes to see spiritual truth so we could respond by faith. If He didn't open our eyes, we couldn't respond by faith because it wouldn't make any sense. That's why we pray for people before we go talk to them, right? Our fallen minds are blinded by sin and we regard God's ways as utterly foolish before the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you want to understand spiritual reality, listen to Jesus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, your authority is your traditions. My authority regarding heaven is I have been there. Right? He said, no human being has ever ascended into heaven and come back down to tell us what it's like. By the way, side note, do not, do not construct a belief system about what heaven is like based on people who have, quote, died, unquote, gone to heaven and come back and reported what heaven was like. Do not base any theological reality on anybody who says, I died and I came back and I'm going to tell you what it's like. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ created the joint. He created the heavens and the earth. He lives there. That's his home. He came from heaven to tell us what it's like. And he's authoritative source. He's God. He not only created it, he owns it. It's his father's house. So don't believe human beings that say, well, I know what it's like because I've been there. That is not authoritative. What Jesus Christ says about heaven, he's the only God man. He lives there, created there. He came from heaven to earth to tell us what God is like and to live out the life of God in us. He says, you want to get there? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now remember, Israel is in the wilderness and they're rebelling against God. And God sends venomous serpents into the camp. And these venomous snakes bite the people. Some die, some get sick. And so they repent of their sins and they cry out to God, what are we going to do with these snakes? And God says, Moses, make a bronze serpent, in other words, a bronze snake, put it on a high pole and lift it up in the middle of the camp. So anybody who looks at that bronze snake after they've been bitten and looks at it by faith, believing that God will heal them, I'm going to heal them, right? They're not healed because there's magic in the bronze snake. They're healed because of their faith that God will heal them because he made that promise. So this lifting up the serpent in the wilderness as a way of saving you from a snake bite is a picture of Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross where everyone could see him, right? When he was lifted up on the cross, he said, I'm dying for the sins of the world. I'm taking the penalty of human sin. So the innocent son of God lifted up on the cross, took our sin on himself, died in our place, paid the penalty for our crimes to God the Father, who's the righteous judge. So we deserve to die for our sins, but Jesus, because he loved us, we're going to take a look at this more next week, he substitutionarily died in our place. Paid our penalty, and as a result of that, everyone who believes in that payment for sins will be saved from eternal separation from God and live forever in heaven. Jesus makes it exceedingly clear here, and we're going to see more of this in John 14 in the coming months, you must be born again. You need his life, not our life. Without the Holy Spirit living in us, we are attempting to do this thing called the Christian life and are on power. It cannot work. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit of spirit. The astonishing thing here is that God loves us enough to give us himself. To give us himself. I, think about it. I have no idea what the Holy Spirit puts up with me every day. He lives in you, which means he's privy to every one of your thoughts. Whoa, you mean everything I think he knows? Uh-huh. He knows your motives. He knows what you look at. He knows what you're thinking about when you're looking at it. 
right? He knows when you criticize somebody else. He knows when you criticize him. He knows when you cry out to him for forgiveness. That's a little humbling, which as it should be. But the Lord loves us so much, he said, I'm going to give you not just life, I'm going to give you myself, which is the source of life. And on that basis, I will resurrect you literally from the dead, not physical death, that's coming, spiritual death. I'm going to reconcile my relationship with you, which is broken through sin by paying the penalty on your behalf, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, into your life and give you new life, my life. That's what it means to be born again. Okay, let's summarize, and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Most of these you already know, but these are foundational truths. You cannot build your life on anything less. Our sin has separated us from God, which is spiritual death. Only Jesus Christ can reconcile our relationship with God and give us spiritual life. Number two, spiritual life requires being cleansed from sin and giving new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. His life, not our life. Number three, human effort, religion, can never produce spiritual life. Only God can give life. Number four, like the wind, the Holy Spirit works inscrutably, which means you don't understand it, and invisibly, which means you don't see it. But the effects of his work are visible in the lives of his people. Number five, God will hold us accountable to know and do what he has written in his word. So read it and do it. And lastly, trust in Christ's sacrificial payment for our sin is the only way to have eternal life with God. This is a lot of meat and potatoes. Here's what you do. Read the chapter for yourself. Anytime you read the Bible without praying first, you are assuming you're smart enough to understand it without divine help. Never open God's word without crying out to the Holy Spirit, Lord, I am thick. I am unlearned. Teach me what you want me to learn today from the book you wrote. And he will turn the floodlights on and illumine your hearts. Amen? I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.